Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? My guest today is my old friend and client, Major General Greg Langell, retired from the United States Air Force. Uh, Greg Langell, his last command was Deputy Commander of Joint Special Operations Command for the United States Armed Forces. Uh, Greg's father is a famous Vietnam-era war hero who was shot down uh, with, and, and was a prisoner of war with John McCain for many years uh, before he was repatriated to this country uh, and, thank God, is, is still alive uh, and celebrated an anniversary with his wife recently at the age of 81. Greg's brother is a four-star general in the United States Army and commander of the National Guard. Both of his sons serve in the United States Armed Forces. Greg and I had a great conversation about service-minded leadership and how to lift people up and make them better, even in the toughest circumstances. I am thrilled to welcome as a guest a true American hero, somebody who, when I thank him, I thank him on behalf of myself and my family and all of my country for keeping America strong and the world safe. Somebody I also am proud to count as a friend, somebody I've known for a long time, Greg Langell, Major General. Let me read his uh, uh, bio so I make sure to get it right. He is a recently retired United States Air Force Major General with 33 years of service. Uh, I, I need to say a Deputy Commander of the Joint Special Operations Command for how long? For, uh, for two years, Bruce. For two years. Greg now runs his own consulting business. Greg, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to start uh, by asking you, what led you to military service? Let me start there, because I know uh, one of the things that struck me about you and has always made an impression on me is how deep your commitment to service runs. And so what is it that drew you uh, to military service? Yes, thank you, Bruce. Well, it's the short answer, and I'll uh, expand upon it, is that I wanted to be like my father. My dad was an Air Force fighter pilot, and some of my earliest memories are watching airplanes scream over the base in which we lived, uh, my dad coming home, I, I still can picture him in that um, olive drab flight suit. I was my dad's lunch pal. He'd come home and, and uh, we'd have lunch together. And I'm one of those very lucky people who have always known what they wanted to do. As far back as I can remember, I knew I wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force. There's a lot of steps you have to go through to to be a pilot, you know, most people are, or many people are eliminated just from the high physical demands. You have to have good eyesight, good hearing, and you got to make decent grades. You got to compete for it. And then you have to go through pilot training, which is actually fairly rigorous. So I was lucky that I knew, wanted, knew what I wanted to do and, and got to do it. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad was shot down 
in Vietnam, he was an F-4 pilot. And I remember he had a plastic model airplane uh, made by the McDonnell Douglas company of a F-4 Phantom. And my mom always used to get on me because I would grab that airplane off the top of the old stereo console, which doesn't exist anymore. But uh, for, for those younger folks in the audience, a stereo console is a, uh, it's like an iPod, but it's the size of a sofa. And I'd take that F4 and I would fly it around the house and I'd say, I'm going to Vietnam to get that. That, that, that makes me think of uh, you and I have in common that we're Red Sox fans. You once told me the story of how you became a Red Sox fan, and I, I hope you'll forgive me if I ask you to tell that story. So during those years uh, that my dad deployed to Vietnam, he moved us to be close to his family, which was uh, in the North Shore area, about 30 minutes north of Boston. Of course, if you live in that area, it's hard not to become a Red Sox fan, but my, my mom had four kids at the time my dad was shot down, ages one through seven, and she needed a little bit of sanity time. So regardless of how late the sun set, we had a hard bedtime every night. And sometimes in the summer, it was still light outside. And my brother and I, he, he was my roommate, and we would sit up and listen to WEEI Red Sox radio on a alarm clock radio. And every night I'd go to bed listening to Boston Red Sox games in the summer. That's it. That's my youth when I became a diehard Red Sox fan, and that has stuck with me my whole life. And uh, just so people are not on the edge of their seats, can you tell uh, how the story of, of your father's captivity in Vietnam, how did that work out? Yes, uh, it's a happy ending. My father uh, was repatriated in Operation Homecoming in the spring of 1973 with the, the vast majority of the other uh, prisoners of war from Vietnam. He is still Although he's getting up there, he turns 85 in a few months. My mother and him celebrated their 61st uh, wedding anniversary this year. Wow. They're both alive and well in Shirts, Texas. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a happy ending for us. It's hard to believe that it's been so long ago that uh, he came home. Your family has done so much for this country. I, I don't think I can say thank you enough. I write in the book about the supersonic thank you and not to put too fine a point on it, but one of the tools that the military gives commanders at all levels, right, to reward people is the coin. I remember uh, when we met, you had, your, had a lot of your coins proudly displayed. And uh, can you tell the story of how you got the Red Sox coin? The Red Sox coin was a gift from my staff uh, that I served with in Iraq for a year. And they knew I was a diehard Red Sox fan. As a matter of fact, that year was the 2007 uh, World Series. I was, I was deployed to Iraq for a full year. And that was the second World Series that the Red Sox won. And uh, they, they knew I was a diehard Red Sox fan. I was, of course, the, with the time change, I was watching World Series games at four in the morning <laughs> and uh, the, through the Armed Forces Network television. And it was worth it. So that was a, that was a gift from my personal staff that was deployed with me to Iraq uh, that they gave me at the end of our tour there. And can you explain how those coins work and what they're, they're intended to mean? I'm, I'm going to paraphrase some of these details. It's been a while since I've told this story and I may slip up a little bit on it, but it goes back to World War I when I believe it was a British pilot was shot down and was captured by 
uh, French resistance. And in order to prove that he wasn't, you know, a German spy, he showed his unit insignia to the French resistance to prove who he was. And that kind of became the, the ticket to proving you were part of a, of a unit. And that was the, the start of, I believe at that time, it was probably an embroidered insignia, but it evolved into people carrying these metal stamped insignias, these coins, to show that they were part of a unit. And over time, the challenge coin became that if you are part of a unit, you're supposed to carry your, your challenge coin with you at all times. Anybody else can challenge you to see if you have it on you. Uh, if you answer the challenge correctly, they owe you the beverage of your choice. <laughs> if you don't answer the challenge, you can't produce your coin, you owe them uh, the beverage. If it's in a group setting, there's 10 guys there and, and you're the only one without your coin, you're buying nine drinks for, for the rest <laughs> of the guys. So. And, and how did it become a way to recognize and reward people? So the coins originally started off they were unit centric. Um, and then um, they kind of evolved to where people had them to represent positions. They, a commander of a large organization would have a commander's coin that he could give out as a reward for excellence. Think of it like a military medal or decoration, but with less paperwork involved. Yeah, and people, my experience is um, people seem to really cherish the coins they've been given. They do. When I saw somebody hustling, doing a good job, going out of their way as a commander, um, when I was a commander, those were the most rewarding times to give somebody a coin. It's a way to say, hey, you're trying hard, and I notice, and thank you very much. The reason I want to mention that is because I think so many people, they think of military service as so challenging, and of course it is, and is all about service, which of course it is. But there's also this incredible culture of recognizing and, and rewarding. There is, and I think it's, uh, it's important. And quite frankly, it's way better today than when I first came into the military. Uh, it's something that, uh, you know, that I saw over 30 plus years uh, really improved. So can you say something about, I mean, I think, uh, of course, uh, everybody who serves in uniform is doing really important work and difficult work. And you, for a long time, uh, your career was the special op operations community. Can you explain what sets apart special operators? What, what's different about special operators? Sure. Um, I want to be careful because there's a lot of great organizations, and I'm, I'm going to use the term kind of subcultures within the military, tribes may be a better term, but there, there's a lot of folks out there who do great things. We're no exception in the special operations community. We're very proud of what we do. And I have always cautioned our people, don't be so proud of what we do that we're patting ourselves on the back and not being great anymore. So those are the, the caveats I want to say up front. But what, what makes special operations different? We tend to uh, operate in sometimes smaller units. We have a culture of independence and critical thinking where we raise people to be able to go out in a, in a small team, 
with very clear guidance of go, you know, go accomplish this mission and they will go out and do it. Uh, you know, they understand the commander's intent. This is, this is how I'm going to execute things. Yes, they have left and right limits, but uh, special operators are trained to operate in an environment where they make decisions on their own, uh, accomplish a mission, sometimes in a very uh, high-risk, high-reward environment. You think of things like the Bin Laden raid, sneaking into Pakistan and, and uh, grabbing the world's number one terrorist. In the old days, I would say that special operations missions were you know, intensely planned. We've evolved from that. We don't have time for that anymore. The military moves faster than that now. In some cases, they would raid a target. People would go, you know, kick a door down looking for a targeted individual, maybe a, their computer, their cell phone. They would gather information on that target that might lead them to the next target, which they may plan in the back of the helicopter flying there. Most Forces within special operations are selectively manned units. People go through an application process to see uh, if they can do it. Uh, obviously, very specialized training. You know, as I told you at the beginning, just getting through pilot training sometimes. I mean, we, you know, 20% of the people aren't going to make it through. And then to get into a special operations aircraft, there's a whole other layer of scrutiny and training and that you have to go through. So we're proud that we're we're selectively manned, we're specially trained, and that we often operate in small independent teams. Yeah, and, and I know that special operators are built and not born, but um, you know, when I think about the, the indispensable person, the go-to person, I, I, I like to think of special operators because they seem like um, a, a great example, but also a metaphor for like the ultimate go-to person. It's like the best of the best within the best. What does it take to be one of those people? Well, first of all, having worked with some of the best of the best, especially during uh, my final years in the service at uh, Joint Special Operations Command and Special Operations Command Europe and within the special ops team overall, the thing that I think distinguishes those people is their ability to take the guidance and intent of the commander or, or of the boss, whoever's you know, putting out the task, taking that information, moving out to plan, develop, and execute a solution or achieving a mission. Some of the staff officers that I worked with at Joint Special Operations Command, those guys could, could take the desired outcome. If they had a picture of the desired outcome, they could find the most efficient and creative ways to make that happen. And there was a, you know, an old saying, if it's on my radar, you can take it off of yours. That is such a relief. That is an indispensable person to me. So Greg, it sounds like what you're really emphasizing, uh, the ability to own a responsibility, to extrapolate and improvise. But what I'm really hearing as a commander, what you value you know you can rely on this person to deliver for you. Absolutely. You know, one of the things you said uh, at the beginning, Bruce, was you talked about the character of these individuals. Let me, let me qualify. I would rather have a person of average ability that's got the highest level of character, integrity, than somebody of average in, 
integrity or mediocre integrity and great ability. We can make up for a lack of ability. We can't make up for a lack of character. Um, I mean, can you learn integrity? Can you learn character? My experience is absolutely yes, uh, you can. And that comes from my time. Uh, I had the great pleasure of and honor of serving as the Commandant of Cadets at the Air Force Academy from 2012 to 14. And one of the programs we had there within the Cadet Wing was called the Character and Leadership Development Center. And let's face it, not everybody grows up in the same environment that maybe you or I did. And they haven't had role models to teach them core values. So we would bring people into the Air Force Academy and we would give, it was a four-year curriculum in addition to the military training that they got. And in addition to the academic training that they got, we had a four-year program to walk them through character and leadership development. I believe that you can practice and learn to be the person you want to be. You have to want to do it, but you can do it. And sometimes people just haven't had those role models. So may I ask you to, to, to describe that a little bit? I mean, when you're teaching character, um, are you teaching a mindset? Are you teaching values? Are you teaching behaviors? Uh, I guess probably all of that, right? Yes, all of that. And I remember, I always valued the time. So for the audience, you know, back in uh, 2009, when I was a Colonel and the wing commander of the first special ops wing at Holbrook Field, Florida, we brought Bruce in to talk to different groups of people within our organization. And uh, it, it talked a lot about the differences between generations in the workforce. And millennials sometimes get a bad rap that they want to change everything. And there's some truth to that. <laughs> and I remember one of the things we struggled with at the Air Force Academy was the, the mindset of, well, those might be your core values, but that's not the way I operate. So at the very, on, the, on the very second day, we would have them take an oath, the oath of office. They'd swear their allegiance to the Constitution of the United States to support and defend. And after I'd swear them in and gave them that oath, I'd put them at ease. And I'd say, okay, I want everybody, instead of standing at attention, I want you to look down at the embroidered tape over your left breast pocket. It says U.S. Air Force. Now, the last time I checked, everybody here is a volunteer. None of you have come here by order of the U.S. government. You have come here voluntarily. And so here's the deal. You are joining us. You are joining the U.S. Air Force. We are not going to change our core values or our standards to accommodate you. And that was the message. And, and that message happened all through basic training. Hey, I don't know, I don't know what you did, you know, in your hometown in Poughkeepsie, but you now have a new set of rules to follow. So this is the beginning of basic military training. And we start with an education on the core values of the United States Air Force, right? Integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. You know, I think there are uh, a lot of people who think, you know, character is one of these things, either you've got it or you don't. 
And I, I, I think you hit on a really important key, which is you've got to want it. And, and I like to tell people, look, your own self-interest ultimately is not in conflict with good character. Being a person of good character, you know, that's the way to be. That's who you want to be. That's, that's who other people want to be around. That's who other people want to support. And ultimately, um, you know, it's, it's almost like the selfishness of selflessness. When you realize that's what you should be, that's what you want to be. But I think a lot, you know, most people don't have the great good fortune to be in, in the U.S. Air Force Academy. How can people learn to be more that way if they don't have, if they don't have the advantage of having, having the Air Force Academy and those resources to teach them? You know, I, I have told many people in my, both, both my military career and in my personal life as well, hey, we, we all have failures. We all do things that we know we probably shouldn't do or, or acts of omission where we should have done and didn't. And, and my own personal approach to this and the same thing I would tell cadets at the academy, things I tell my own sons, you have to practice being the person you want to be. You know, every time you talk to your, your inner conscience, talk to yourself to do the right thing, it becomes easier the next time. So it gets easier to confront unacceptable behavior that you might see somewhere else. It's really interesting what's going on in our country right now. There, there are a lot of people right now who I think have, are recognizing that they've been letting bad things happen. And, you know, not being a racist yourself doesn't necessarily solve, solve racism. Sometimes you have to take a stand and say something about it. Yeah, I love, uh, I just want to draw a bright line under a few things you said. One, that tolerating something going on without speaking up about it, that is, that is an integrity issue, right? Um, even if it's not you doing it, that being witness to something but not standing up, maybe that's the hard part of integrity. That's the proactive part of, of, of acting with integrity. And, and as a mantra, practice being the person you want to be. Uh, I mean, that is, um, that is a great uh, mantra. And it's also a simple way to describe getting better at things that are, that are hard, like, like character. Something you mentioned to me uh, in a previous uh, dialogue we had that you've always told people who say to you, how can I be the best? And so, so you have a great answer to that. When people say to you, uh, how can I be the best or how can I be one of the best? Uh, can, yeah. can you tell them that rule? Because it's a great one. Yeah, absolutely. One of the neat things we do in the United States Air Force, uh, everybody gets a, an evaluation every year. Okay, that's, that's to be you expected, I think. But we also give everybody feedback every year where you sit somebody down and you tell them how they're doing and they get a chance to ask questions and provide feedback to leadership as well. And so in many of the feedback sessions I had given in my Air Force career, I have a lot of people who would say to me, hey, sir, you know, this is great, but uh, you know, I want to be your number one captain. How can I be number one? And I'd say, well, who do you think the number one captain is? And most of the time, they all knew who the number one guy was. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a name out there for a guy who used to work for me. Captain Tom Polinski. Tom was 
you know, Tom was the number one guy. Everybody could tell he was the number one guy. I didn't have to tell anyone that. They just knew. So my answer was, be like Tom. You, you know who the number one guy is. Be like him or her. I, don't, I can't give you the key to the test other than to tell you everybody knows what the one, number one person's like and what they're doing. Be like them. So, so, uh, so it's sort of like a corollary. Uh, practice being the person you want to be. Uh, the corollary is if you're not quite sure who you want to be, uh, look at who, who's the best or uh, the, who are the people you admire and be more like them. Right. I, I often tell people too that um, you, you can learn from uh, good leaders and you can learn from poor leaders. The, the good leaders you try to emulate, the poor leaders you try to not emulate. Be like the guy who's number one. Don't be like the guy who's last. I think you're in a, a unique position to speak to operating in an environment where the challenges are life or death. You have people who are all relying on each other. You know, sometimes you run into a tough spot where everyone says, oh, I've got too much to do and not enough time. Uh, but usually they're not in Afghanistan fighting the bad guys. So what, what, what is to be learned from being in such high stakes situations? What can, what, what's to be learned from that? You're right. Everybody has you know, stress in your life that comes from a perception that you have more to do than you have time to do it. And that, I mean, I, I've been retired from the military now for uh, well over a year and a half. And, and I still have days like that today. For example, you know, there's, there's a, a number of competing priorities in my life. And what I learned through my time in the military, and I personally think it's even easier when the stakes are high and you're dealing with life and death situations is to prioritize the tasks at hand. You do what must be done and you put aside that which can be done later. I mean, when the stakes are high, uh, it's much clearer to separate out the important from the unimportant. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different books and courses out there on time management that talks about urgent and important, urgent and unimportant. And it's easy to bin those when you sit around and, you know, map it out in a classroom. But uh, when the pressure's on and the stakes are high, you know, that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. What is the most important thing we can do here? And I mean, a huge part of military culture is um, relying on each other and being able to rely on each other. And what makes somebody, particularly somebody you, you really don't want to let down? That's, the, that's an interesting question. And, and really, if you, if you look back on studies of uh, people in intense, stressful combat situations, most of them aren't doing it for the red, white, and blue. They're not doing it for the Army or the Air Force or the Marine Corps. They're doing it for their peers. They're doing it for the person next to them. It's the personal relationships that develop over time that create that camaraderie and esprit de corps that you're willing to fight for, and you don't want to let them down. My old attitude about unit culture, and I believe that over time, an organization takes on the personality of its leadership. So what type of unit are we going to be? This is a, this is a great case study from 
again, going back to the Air Force Academy, we had cadets that were, weren't quite grasping the fact that in the military, you were supposed to do what you're told, follow orders. So my first reaction was, we're going to crack down on these cadets and make them follow orders. And if they don't, we're going to give them demerits, and we're going to make them march tours, and we're going to restrict them. And I quickly learned, and it was a cadet that taught me this. They said, well, you can you know, make me march all the tours you want, but I'm not going to be committed to the organization. And I said, you're right. I want your commitment, not your compliance. Because if I have your commitment, you'll be compliant. You'll do the right thing. You do it for the unit. You'll do it because it's the right thing to do, not for fear of punishment. And so that was the turn where I, and I took all of the staff that were telling the cadets what to do every minute of their life. And I told them to back off, let the cadets be in charge. Let them run this organization known as the Cadet Wing. And we will intervene if they're going to do anything unsafe, illegal, immoral, or unethical, but otherwise let them fail. And we did. And it took a year, but after a year, the cadets had a stake in the game. They were committed. They, they were feeling like they ran the organization. They were committed to the organization. So it was a, it was a culture of commitment instead of compliance. That's what I call sort of influence as opposed to authority. Or, of course, in the military, there are clear lines of authority, but the influence, making people want to be this way, right? And, and part of it, you're, you're telling a story about turning, sort of turning it over to them and saying, hey, uh, we're going to let you make your own decisions. Of course, within a tremendous amount of structure and with values that are vivid, uh, vividly displayed everywhere, is, is, there an, is there something else that drives that kind of commitment? You know, at JSOC, we were the premier counterterrorism organization in the U.S. military. And what drove our commitment, our commander at that time, uh, Lieutenant General Scott Miller, at that time, he came up with the mantra, whatever our nation needs us to be, we do something that no one else in our country does. We go after the hardest problems, the hardest targets. That created uh, an intense commitment from people within the organization. I mean, we were all in. So it was a, it was a commitment to a mission that really gave us the, com the commitment within the organization that drove the results we were looking for. Uh, do you have a final word of wisdom for people in, uh, earlier in their career? They say, how do I get to be like you? You know, if I could attribute my success in the military to one thing, it would probably be a combination of persistence, hard work, and treating people with dignity and respect. You know, my career started off with a big disappointment being medically eliminated from pilot training. That's the persistence piece. There was a lot of times I could have given up and I didn't, and I finally received a medical waiver to go back and be a pilot like I always wanted to do. And then the second was, uh, if I work hard and do what I'm told and be nice to people, uh, it usually pays off. And a lot of good people took good care of me along the way, worked hard, made me look good when I was a boss, uh, understanding bosses that uh, trained and mentored me when I was maybe a below average pupil. But uh, th th that would be my, my advice to people. Persistence, hard work, and treating people with respect. I will say a major general, Greg Langell, a true American hero, a leading edge Vortex is, is your consulting firm, correct? Yes, it is. 
thank you for everything you've done to keep America strong and the world safe. Thank you for being who you are. Uh, and thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Bruce, it's, uh, I, first of all, I appreciate your friendship. I'm honored to be on your show. And uh, every time someone thanks me for my service, I, my standard reply is, it was an honor to serve. So thank you very much. Next week, I'll be interviewing Vanessa Bolas, Chief Operations Officer at the YMCA Retirement Fund and a longtime champion and soldier in the YMCA movement. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. You can learn more about goto-ism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.